Uh, what do I want to talk about? Um, I don't know. We could talk about progressions. Progression. Mm-hmm. That was like the vaguest way <laughs> to, to do it. Mm-hmm. I do have an interest in covering a few things that we glaringly missed the last time. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like the the last episode roundup, which may not even be adequate. But I've, I have a feeling that in the future, if, you know, we may have like other people tell us things we did wrong that we could address. Yeah. Right, or I mean, certainly we will also tell ourselves things we did wrong. That's true. But yeah, progressions is good. The reason progressions came to mind was just because I was playing this. Well, you were playing Salt and Sanctuary, and you were talking about that, and I was playing. Uh, mm-hmm. I had been playing both both Hollow Knight and Hyper Light Drifter, and all three of those games, you know, in my understanding, are like relatively open Metroidvania esque mm-hmm. things where you know. Uh, that that do progression and difficulty in a certain kind of way, and where progression and difficulty are like a very big part of the, right? Pro- probably the biggest part. I have an idea, which is let's introduce this podcast. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bryce, and I'm Will, and this is Side Quests. <laughs> uh, yeah, it turns out that we're doing this largely because we can't stop, <laughs> so. Uh, the idea of like planning to start talking about something at a particular time. It is at all times unclear when the podcast has started. Right. So far, I think I caught it early <laughs> enough that we can use all of that stuff after I hit record, which I decided to do arbitrarily when I noticed we were just talking about what we should talk about. So we were playing, you play, were playing Hollow Knight and Hyperlight Drifter, and yeah. I've been playing Salt and Sanctuary, uh, which is uh, Metroidvania. And I do want to point out that last time we mentioned neither Metroid nor Vania, uh, nor Castlevania, um, in our many, many games that we mentioned that would be part of a video game canon. Um, the, and the other game that we, I don't believe we mentioned and I don't see on this list in, in front of me is, that is related to all three of these games that is mentioned every time anyone brings up either of these games is Dark Souls. Which games? Well, I, I believe that all three of the ga- of the games we, we were talking about that we had just been playing. Um, oh, okay. Um, Hollow Knight, uh, Hyper Light Drifter, and, and Salt and Sanctuary. Right. Um, all, everything I have read about them references Dark Souls in an attempt to describe them. Huh. Um, That's very funny. Because uh, well, I think of that as such a new game. I guess it's not that new of a game. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're like a little older than... Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I guess that's true. Than a lot of gamers. We should, um, we should look up when that game came out in the break. But that, that is a good segue into a re- re- revisiting of, of the things we missed and, and, mm-hmm. and failed to, to talk about last time. And it, the list is enormous. <laughs> oh um, yeah, it's like most <laughs> games ever. And it was very difficult to just stop adding things to the list. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure that we have. No, I think we're just going to keep adding things to that list forever. Because that's just what you do. You think about, oh yeah, that would be part of the canon. We should talk about that. Uh, And Metroidvania is described as a genre, but it's... Well, what is a genre? I mean, what is a genre of video games in particular? Right. Because one game that uh, gets mentioned relatively frequently when it comes to this genre, if it is a genre, is Zelda. Right. Like the, Zel- the, 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 the first. The, the Legend of Zelda. 
Right. Yes. The <laughs> Legend of Zelda is a Metroidvania game. Right. Um, it is not a 2D side-scroller, but then so many other things that started getting put into the Metroidvania category sort of flattened, you know, crushed that as an aspect of it. Right. And and indeed, so, so when the, the Metroidvania name comes from the, you know, the combination of Metroid and Castlevania, and it's, but it's specifically referencing Castlevania Symphony of the Night, the PS1 release, because the previous Castlevanias were not particular. I guess Castlevania 2 was kind of open-worldy, but it's a very different kind of game. Yeah, I and, played, I played uh, Castlevania 3 for the NES. Uh, I, know, I don't think I've ever actually played either of the first two. It was, you know, linear levels. And there were some that did some clever things with backtracking. There was a clock tower level, uh, which is pretty iconic to the, the Castlevania series. And so, so like, that does involve doing some of this backtracking. The Castlevania Symphony of the Night is the one that, that, that defines the, the Metroidvania term. And, and that is when people really added Castlevania to this, this list of things. Because the previous Castlevanias were almost entirely punishingly difficult platformers which had, you know, Medusa heads knocking, knocking you up into pits. Like, I would say that that is the primary thing that defines the first set of Castlevanias, is Medusa heads knocking you into pits and it being extremely hard. Yeah, I definitely got knocked into a bunch <laughs> of pits when I was younger. But Castlevania Symphony of the Night is the first that defines this Metroidvania genre, and it is the, the designer, the lead designer, and I don't remember his name, but there's a, a GDC talk, which is Game Developers Conference, and there's a... They have a YouTube channel of past talks, and a lot of them are really interesting. And, and I think this is where I saw this. He talks about the the design of that game, and he, he says that they were not that they were not influenced by Metroid. They did not think about Metroid. They were influenced by The Legend of Zelda. Um, and that was hmm. that was their that was their thing. Castlevania has was like a like a I don't know maybe like a dying franchise, and they had, they were like a different team, and they had kind of gotten given this thing, and they're like I don't they called like I don't know do something new with it, um, huh. and so they're like okay let what can we do that's new, and they looked back at the things that they thought were really interesting, and this sense of you know openness that that's in the original Zelda was like their their starting point. It's funny because it's often the two D platformingness. I mean, it's so overwhelming as a presentation to how you're engaging with it like most of the time you are making sure you're moving in a direction and leaping and Zelda is I mean you're moving around but being the top down exploration is handled in a which of these four directions can I go uh, and for how long and oh there's a spot I can't do how do I get back to it and so the, it's it's funny how like the ways that they're the same are are sort of secondary or hidden compared to some of the, these other defining characteristics of how you're actually spending your time with it. Right. Like one of the the big things that defines the experience of playing Metroid is like these big traversal challenges, um, where you have to jump up these long. You know these long elevator shafts of uh, of you know single platforms, or where you get the freeze ray, and then you have to freeze those those little guys that the, jump they go back and forth. Yeah, and then you have to jump on them. And so the experience of traveling is so very different. Sorry, I'm fixing Will's microphone, which is whining, and you know that because you just heard this recording. I, oh. on the other hand, do not know it. Yeah, it's true. So it's probably not something Will is doing. 
Yeah, it's much better. I bent the pins of the XLR cable a little bit, and the whining went oh, away. Very good. <laughs> it's like a, a loose tooth. <laughs> we were talking about how traversal in Metroid and traversal in Zelda are characterized very differently. Right, and, and so the experience of moving around the world, there, there is this, there's something about the experience of moving around the world that is similar, which is this ex, like experience of openness mm-hmm. and you know, confusion. And the kind of like, in the early NES games, um, very understated, but there's still a kind of like environmental storytelling where mm. you're like, you go from place to place and the environment looks and feels different and there's reasons for that, which are sort of apparent and sort of not. Right. They don't necessarily actually tell you anything about the place. You're like, oh, the rocks are red here. Right. And it's funny the way that you can think of it as a different level, but there isn't actually a different level. Unlike Mario has, uh, you know, you get to the end and now it takes you to a new place. And one of the things there that is really different about Mario and the Metroidvania games at least the original Mario games, is that the the paths don't really branch in Mario. Right. Uh, and, I mean, they more importantly, they do branch. There are branching paths. You can choose to go up the shaft, down the shaft, through the to the middle, and into the next section. And the first time you get to a position like that in the original Metroid, you're just like, I don't really know what to do. Should I go up? And... And I think that in that case, it's relatively trivial which way you go, because I think you just run into dead ends in most places or something like that. Right. Well, I mean, in the original Metroid, right, it starts it starts by, like, bludgeoning you with the fact that you're going to have to backtrack by having mm. you start in the screen, go to the right because you're used to going right, not be able to go anywhere, and then have to go all the way back left and grab the, grab the ball. Right, which is good, but that's that's a good example of a game teaching you how to play it, and especially as it relates to the paradigm of the other games at the in the era. Yeah, which, absolutely. I mean, and in comparison, you can in fact accidentally forget to get the sword or not know about the sword in The Legend of Zelda. Yeah, I am like halfway through a game where I purposefully didn't get the sword in the original Zelda. I'm playing it on a Game Boy Advanced. And it's great because it's the same original game right down to the game slowing down when too many guys shoot arrows at the same time. Um, That's very good. I believe you need to get the second sword, but you don't need to get the first sword. I will report back. Um, If if I I recall correctly, I spent some time as an undergrad in a lounge um, working on this project, but but it was a collaborative project, so I I was not the only person working on it. Well, you you get the magic wand at at some point. Yeah, and that's the most useful thing. I feel like you can't hurt Ganon without the good sword, but I could be wrong. No, Ganon you kill with a silver arrow. Oh, yeah. You just need the bow and arrow. No, that's true. I don't know. I don't remember. You might not need to get any swords. Hmm. See? We'll see. Yeah. I, I, I know you definitely do not need to get the first sword. There is nothing right. important. Although it is extremely boring for a while to only be able to shoot one fireball from your candle. Yeah, that is not the most fun. <laughs> and you might have to, like, you might have to skip certain things and then come back to get them later. Yeah, you have to oh, do it in a weird order. You do bombs. Bombs mm-hmm. and, like, you miss with some bombs and you're like, oh, well, I only had eight. Yeah, so now right. I have to go back. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of extremely tedious things built into this mm-hmm. kind of interesting challenge. There's also a surprising amount that you can skip in the original Zelda. Uh, like, I don't know, uh, I think it's level two. You can go into the right room and 
bomb over and then just bomb up the whole way. Um, and you never have to kill anything. You can just go all the way to the top. I think that's two. It's either two or three. Coincidentally, I never remember which one of those two levels is in which spot either. Yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the thing, right? That one, one of the ways that this openness is communicated in these games is secrets. Hmm. Um, Zelda does a reasonable job of telegraphing to you that there are things you can discover, um, hmm. but it's still a little bit arbitrary and very mysterious. Yeah, there's I, some some cracks on walls. I don't know how you are supposed to learn you can burn down bushes. Hmm, I don't mm-hmm. know if it tells you anything about that. I'm fairly certain I have burned every bush in the original Zelda. I was relatively recently shocked to find out how actually tiny the overworld screen is. Right. Um, So I probably have burned every bush in in that game. I actually played through that game, but not in a very long time, and Mm -hmm. I haven't played through it very many times. I read recently, and I don't know if it's true, that that there is like a feature on every screen, Mm. and that that is a way that you know where secrets are. Oh, interesting. Uh, that, there, that there is, like, something something important on every screen. Okay. And so screens that seem empty have a secret. Yeah, or or at least an enemy or something. I don't know. Yeah, and I don't remember how, like, something important was right. defined. I was just thinking about the rocks that tumbled down mm-hmm. on the way up to the fifth level, I think it is. Like, up in the, the top of the map. And there's nothing on that. <laughs> right. On that, but there are rocks There's a new down. mechanic. Um, right. Which you may have run into already, but yeah, it's certainly like you really have to deal with it, or really just run as fast as possible. Because I think there's no reason you have to get hit by those things. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a really those are those rocks are really interesting um, because I think they're extremely atmospheric and fun mm-hmm. and not very threatening at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think by the time you get to them, you've got so many health. Mark Brown, I think, goes through how simple this the overworld is but uh-huh. like, you really need to have beaten a few levels before you can get up there or and when you do you can like run away from it i don't know fairly easily i don't know i feel like you don't you, there's not actually that much of a percentage of your right health that gets hit yeah something very similar is in a link to the past but i just i remember i remember the feeling of the tumbling rocks in that game just like it just like felt hmm. incredible. It was like, oh my god, the mountains falling on me! Hmm. Like, huh. whoa. I um, I can't remember if I've played all of A Link to the Past. That is a game I have played a lot of. Oh, okay. Um, See, I had I sort of skipped the Super Nintendo, so I played Zelda for the original Zelda for a very long time, and the second one less, but some amount. I don't think I I've never beaten. The second Zelda. The, yeah, the side-scrolling Zelda? The side scroll. Well, yeah, the one where the battles are side-scrolling. Yeah. The bosses, yeah. or the um, temples are all... Are all yeah, I really like that game. Um, I think it's, like, really, really good. Uh, I think it's neat. I think it's really weird that you have to uh, learn how to stab up and stab down, like, as separate skills. And until you do, some of those... Um, some of those levels, the things, especially the battles that you get sucked into, like with the, the floating eyeball things, mm-hmm. are extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. Um, and then once you can do that, you're like, oh, this is actually really easy. Uh, which is really interesting because, I don't know, you level up in not just I have a new object, but 
You right. They well that they really like threw every form of progression into that game. Um, it was because hmm. there was actual experience points huh. um, and levels, which I don't quite remember what you gained uh, from gaining levels. But huh. there were experience points and levels, and you got them from killing things. And then there were hmm. hearts, which you got in dungeons, and there were items which you got in dungeons, and there were spells and techniques which you found in in towns, basically. Yeah. Um, you could get a jump really high thing. Yeah, and... there, yeah, the, yeah. There are all the magic things. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a jump spell, and there was a you, oh. t- you turned to a fairy was one spell, and oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a shield spell, and I think there's a whole thing about adding towns as a mechanic in like a lot of games that they were experimenting with in the NES. Uh, Castlevania Two right. notably has. The town mechanic. Yeah, Castlevania to Castlevania 2 feels a lot like Zelda to Zelda 2. Mm. Um, I've never... I I haven't actually played Castlevania 2. I just... I, I know about it because of the internet. Right. Which exists. Yeah, I played it as a kid. Um, I did not ever finish it. It was really hard is what I remember. Yeah, my, my understanding is that it was just not as uh, cohesive or as... Every moment wasn't quite as polished as it was in the original. And it's funny because I didn't, didn't play the original either, but when I was learning about this, I was like mostly thinking about it in terms of Castlevania 3, which I played and liked, and I was very young, so it, I didn't really have a lot of control over what video games I played. Right. Yeah, there are so many games that I played when I was a kid where you, you just played them. You, you, they were so expensive. Um, you ended up with a game or, you know, somehow and you'd play it and you'd play it and you'd be like, I'm having fun playing a video game because it's a video game. Yeah, my my brother is a little, is, you know, older than me by about eight years. So he had the NES in his, like, middle school, high school days. And then when I got to be in middle school, I got my uh, PlayStation. There wasn't this big focus on getting a whole new system for me until I was sort of old enough to, I don't know, demand one? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there was... Earn? I don't know. I I had to earn my video game systems in... There was a lot of elaborate parental negotiation around work um, in video games. I got my PlayStation as a birthday present, for which I am still to this day (laughs) grateful for. Thanks, Mom and Dad. For getting me a PlayStation in 1997, I continue to buy them for myself. <laughs> um, but it's funny because, like, actually, as far as gifts are concerned, if you're willing to shell out that initial bit, you know, I probably didn't know how many games that I got were from dollar bargain bins or whatever, you know, yard sales or whatever, whatever right. else they got. I got that and Final Fantasy VII as, like, new games, and I would get maybe a game or two a year. Yeah. But, yeah, you just had, like, you didn't have that many games, and you'd play them, and you'd play them. And But even, even today with kids, kids will just play games. Playing video games is fun. Um, True. Just as a, like, as a really flat baseline. Um, mm-hmm. And so, frequently, playing bad video games is fun. Like, it's... Fun to jump a little guy around, or fun to fly your spaceship, or, or whatever. And in an unrelated project, I was I was thinking about a like a, a resource extraction game. 
because um, mm -hmm. I wanted to make a resource extraction game, right. a very simple resource extraction mini game for this flying your spaceship around project. Right, um, that you're putting on YouTube. Yeah, there's a video game programming tutorial project in Scratch, and I want to make a game where you fly a spaceship around, and you get resources from places. I thought that's a good mechanic, and mm -hmm. you could upgrade your things, and people like upgrading things, and they like being able to get their resources faster because they've upgraded their things. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like a big open space that you can hang like a story onto if you want to, or you can hang random emergent, you know, whatever. Um, I wanted to make some fun mechanics. And so I like, I literally, I just Googled mining game or like <laughs> mining mini game oh. or like simple mining game into, okay. you know, I just Googled it and I found like random flash games on mini clip and I, mm. you know, or armor games or congregate, which incidentally, I think that those three things and like what flash games are in the history of flash games is it's like extremely interesting because it's this this weird totally separate track of video game development yeah it's interesting and weird and revolves largely around making games that most people pay for free which you know before anyone talked about free to play anything right. else people were playing games for free on you know flash games on the internet and some of them were just people's silly things that they made and some of them some, some of them were on homestarrunner.com. Right, and, and some of them became, um, became like, console games. Uh, Alien Hominid was, was, I think, the first, like, Flash game that I ever heard of that was, like, a random Flash game on... I think it was on Congregate first, and huh. then it moved to, you know, like... Oh, it was on the GameCube. <laughs> okay. Um, and maybe the PlayStation as well, but the game... It, I think it could have four players, so the GameCube was actually a better choice than the PlayStation 2, because the... GameCube had four player ports, and it was a Flash game. It's not like it required a lot of intense right. things. And it's also really interesting because that's some of the beginning of... Oh, I mean, maybe not the beginning because Nintendo was sort of on this ride the whole time. But the, like, oh, low-fidelity graphics that are fun can sell. Right. Well, and I, and I think it's, it is, in a certain way, like, the beginning of the indie marketplace. I, I don't know how it was released, but, like, this transfer from, like, random casual PC game and developers, like, moving that to console, like, that's, hmm. you know, that's a thing that, that has become very normal. You know, with now that like, all consoles are connected to the internet and you don't have to have, like, I think probably not having boxes um, and marketing and, like, that's right. a and big deal. And you're talking about Flash games as a whole leading to that not right. in hominid specifically. Although it is a good example of something that was so successful that it managed to make a transition. Yeah, and it is, it is the world. first example I can remember. Which, you know, I don't. it might not even be historically important, right? It might just be the thing that I noticed. I remember it because, <laughs> so I bought it. I, I have owned Alien Hominid. I had a GameCube for, uh, it's probably at my parents' house still. At some point, I had a GameCube, and I had I wanted Alien Hominid. It seemed neat, and it it was definitely appealing. I was like, oh, it's like old school games, right? You yeah, know, bright, colorful, cartoony. There's animations. It's silly. You jump around. It had a modern controller. I never played it on its Flash version, right? So I don't know how it controlled then. It was simple, but like actually, I I remember feeling really great that I was playing this game holding a mo more modern controller that was more ergonomic and playing a game that was of the style of Nintendo. Because Nintendo controllers, though, are iconic and beloved, uh, are terrible. Well, there, there are no right angles in the human body. <laughs> and yet. Um. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking that maybe we should take a little bit 
bit of a break. Yeah, we so can circle okay. back to something maybe. Yeah. All right. Let's see you soon. I mean, hear you soon. I mean, you'll hear us. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay, and we're back from our break Hi. again. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a great break. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I would like to start talking more about some of those games we mentioned at the beginning, which is I have recently been playing Salt and Sanctuary. Um, yeah, and I've been I've been playing uh, Hollow Knight, and and I just finished Hyper Light Drifter, and and I'm extremely excited to have been to have finished these or to have finished Hyper Light Drifter and to be playing Hollow Knight. It has it, I find it very difficult to get into video games um, and stick with them. So there's something about these games that mm-hmm. I successfully did so. So. You know, congratulations, me or the designers or someone. Uh. Right, and and I've been playing through more games recently. I mean, I played a lot of games in my youth, and now have been doing slightly less game playing as far as like the many other ways I engage with the world. So I've been playing a lot more games, and I've been playing Salt and Sanctuary, and I'm actually it's it's a little bit starting to lose me, even though I'm pl- I've you know, been playing for some number of hours that is above 10 or 15 or something like that, which I think is really, it's, I don't know if fun is the right word. It it gets compared to Dark Souls with some regularity, and a lot of things do, but in this case, it actually shares many mechanics with Dark Souls. Right. It's starting to lose me a little bit, mostly because I feel so aimless in it that I am not that excited to be, like, brought back in. Yeah, and this is the weakness of the Metroidvania genre, mm-hmm. right? And probably with these earlier games, Metroid and Zelda and... Yeah, probably just those two. Uh, not, not Castlevania, Symphony of the Night. But with, with those very early games, the, the total gameplay was actually very relatively short. I don't know how long it takes to finish Zelda, but it's less than 10 hours... Well, it's interesting because I know where all the things are. Right. So. No, it's probably less than like an hour for someone. but <laughs> Except for level three, which I can still never find for some um, reason. But, but like... Two. I can't remember. Uh, and, and, and Metroid is, is similar. Like, I, I, spent a, I spent what felt like an extremely large amount of time playing Metroid. But I think a lot of that time, and I think a lot of the time of Zelda, was repetitive difficulty stuff. Mm. Um, right? Because games used to be harder right and they used to pad out the amount of time you spent on them by making you die constantly mm-hmm. and, and that's become less true even in games that are designed to be difficult it's a little bit less true so like even if zelda took a really long time most of it wasn't being confused about what to do um huh. most of it was probably struggling to like beat a thing well there's also a lot of where is the next level i don't know which is its own kind of struggling with what to do, but you know right. what to do. I mean, each level you've beaten is numbered. Yeah, you do have to like wander around aimlessly. And so like on the one hand, that is an answer to what to do, wander around aimlessly, but it's like not an extremely satisfying answer. Right. Um, and I think it's like kind of unhappy making. Yeah. You're like, uh, I could wander around aimlessly or, you know, I could do something else. I've, I've given myself in Salt and Sanctuary the task of mapping it not not like a very accurate map i'm you know making essentially a graph like the uh, like graph theory graph of mm. the branch of mathematics right. yeah yeah um which so you have nodes and connections and right um, yeah so so i yeah i have nodes and and connections and labels on nodes right. and so you're you're discarding distance right and you're you're what you're mapping is connectivity correct Oh. Yeah, which is actually an incredibly useful way of of mapping it. Yeah, and 
it also makes me feel a little bit like I am in Goodwill Hunting, because uh, <laughs> the problem that he solves at the in that movie that gets the notice of all the MIT professors or Harvard prof- I forget which school he's actually working in, but he is supposed to be working at MIT, but is filmed on Harvard. Oh, okay. Well, that's why I didn't know. That's how I didn't know. <laughs> and it's extremely obvious to anyone who has been to either of these schools because they have really, really different looking campuses. Right. I mean, I've walked through both of their campuses. Um, um, I, I haven't taken any classes at either one. But <laughs> anyway, but that the problem that he is doing, and, and there's a great... This is the section of the video where I talk about somebody else's YouTube channel <laughs> of, the, of this podcast. Where That's going to be one of our segments. Right. There's a number file. Number file is a great YouTube series about math and its mathematicians talking about different math problems. And I love it. Uh, it's really great. And uh, in one of them, somebody is explaining the math problem that he's doing. And actually, it turns out that most people can solve that problem in, in like... relatively short period of time what might be harder is proving something but i don't think it's entirely clear what he has done yeah they explain it in the video what he's doing i don't think they explain it in the movie right yeah like yeah and i i I don't remember i've you know i've seen that movie a couple times but i don't really remember that like what the what the math there is or specifically i don't remember whether he's supposed to have solved a problem or proved a result or okay it's so it's a part of of graph theory and the idea is there are trees of nodes and the there are rules to what is allowed and what isn't allowed and uh, uh in this description but it is all of the trees that have 10 nodes and then there's more words that mean some of the like restrictions on what's allowed so like all paths have to branch twice and so if it's a, a node with only two branches coming out of it, well, you could remove that node and it would still be a straight line. So that doesn't count. And there's a word that I forget that means that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the problem can be described very succinctly so that very few people understand it or right. more broadly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, graph theory is delightful uh-huh. because it is it almost entirely consists of problems that anyone can understand. And consisting large part of problems that are really, really hard. And that's, this is great. Right. This is really fun. I know. And, and one of the, the most famous graph theory problems, the, um, uh, the bridges. The, uh, mm. Yeah, the Konigsberg. Konigsberg bridge problem uh, is a bar bet. Right. Like, it is a, like, you can describe it as a bar bet. And you can solve it using math. But everyone can understand the result. Yeah. Um, and you can describe it very intuitively. Yeah, it's it's great. And it's remarkably useful, especially when it comes to the notion of, of graphing paths in games. Like, you could take Zelda, right, and take all the right. paths that you can take. And every time you can go off of a single path, then the branching point represents a node, and you draw the lines coming off of it. And you can graph the entire thing without actually having to get a lot of detail. You don't have to necessarily point out how it fits geometrically in with, with the other things, but you can understand the paths that you can take. And, in fact, Mark Brown does this in his right, YouTube yeah, channel. Yeah. Since we're in this segment, I might as well yeah. do a whole hog. But graphing is an incredibly useful way to think about problems 
in video game and video games specifically the options that players have in video games and when they can do them. Right. Yeah. And it, and it comes up in a, in a, a lot of different circumstances. I mean, in video games, in computer programming in general, like one of the things that is this kind of graph theory traversal um, that is in a lot of video games is like dialogue trees. It's an abstraction for describing relationships between things and things mm -hmm. that are connected to other things. Insofar as things are connected to other things pretty much all the time, it's an extremely useful abstraction. Right. And it's one where, you know, now looking back at the, you know, one uh, square per screen graph maps of Nintendo games I drew when I was a kid, mm -hmm. I kind of look back and be like, wow, I could have graphed that a lot more easily. Right. You're <laughs> like, I can only keep going to the right. <laughs> like, like yeah, I'm sure my, my Metroid notebooks could be simpler. Oh <laughs> my god, I totally have a notebook that has a Metroid. <laughs> it's a, a Metroid for the Game Boy. I think it's Metroid 2 map. That one doesn't have an auto map. It does not have an auto map. Yeah. Which is a thing that I think is sort of a problem when it comes to these games. Like, like Salt and Sanctuary does not have an auto map, mm -hmm. right? And so... Is that good or bad? So what is the problem? I Sorry, is having oh, an auto map or not having an auto map a problem? Oh, I'm glad there is no map. Mm -hmm. um, or not an auto map. Like, I would love if some of these games involved a system by which I can map in it. Because I'm not really sure what the best i don't want to lose my piece of paper right <laughs> um i mean i had this like graph paper notebook when i was younger and still have i mean i think i think i picked up like a very cheap copy for the game boy like the original game boy of metroid 2 and so like i might have even been in college when i was right. playing it yeah that game is great yeah it's um really fun. I'm totally lost and now I would graph it completely differently than I would have, but yeah. I, I like understand this other way of graphing things. I mean, that's just added my enjoyment to graphing maps. Right. And, and I might be the biggest weirdo right. in my love of this thing. Yeah, it's funny because auto mapping is extremely common. You know, auto like waypointing is extremely common and that's right. like it's whole a whole different set of things. But there's a lot of really mundane rote tasks that video games don't do for you and ask mm. you to do. I mean, in a certain regard, like, almost all of video games is a series of mundane tasks that are strung together and are supposed to be fun, and somehow right. they are. Mm. Walking from place to place. I mean, there's also fast travel, and that's a thing, and some people will like that and right. um, whatever. But And there are games where you can turn fast travel off. Right. Like, the fallouts, I think, have a... Uh, you can turn off fast travel for difficult mode, ultra, super hardcore mode or something. Right. And I, I don't know where I stand on, on auto mapping because there's a certain way in which I'm just, it's just a chore I have mm -hmm. to do. And, you know, if I have to draw a map, I can do it. I can do it to an arbitrary degree of, and so the challenge, like the game challenge of not giving me a map mm -hmm. is me having to think about how much of a map I want to draw. Yeah, one problem is expecting me to remember between play sessions some important piece of information. Right. And, like, once I've sort of committed to drawing a map, then that's good. Like, I'm okay with being like, oh, man, I forget where all these things are. Let me draw a map. And that's what happened. I played I played Salt and Sanctuary for, for hours. And then I realized that I couldn't keep it all in my head anymore. So I wanted to draw it, and then it turns out that it's really hard to draw a map of this game 
for me, there's things that I'm like, oh man, do those things connect? Oh, I can drop down here. How do I represent that? Um, oh, uh, there's a there's a section that's particularly hard to map that is woods, where you are there are trees and you can fall to other paths that mm. you couldn't access otherwise, but, um, or you can you always have can fall down to them wherever you are. And so, how do you graph that? That that's the kind of thing that would fit very well in a one square per square map. Right. There's a lot of things you automatically get by mapping at a very high level of detail rather than mm -hmm. mapping at a level of abstraction. Right. Where, like, there are things that you have to treat as teleporters, essentially. Yeah, but video games, in fact, don't have to obey any of those laws. Right, that's the other thing, yeah. You can have connections between different parts of your game completely unrelated to the physical space they would take up. Right. And a lot of games have no real connection between spaces and you can, you know, have walked around in a circle and then fallen down. There's some, uh, there's a game I, I learned about recently that basically involves doing laps of a house. Hmm. And every time you walk around, something is different. And I really wish I could remember what that game was called. And maybe somebody will tell us. But, but it's, it's yeah. a horror game. Right, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> it's actually a relatively common mechanic to have the sequence of repetitive screens that you must do the right sequence to escape from. Hmm. Right, there's a, there's a Mario 3 level where you have oh, yeah. to do the, the right doors. Oh, there's a Mario 1 castle. There is, yeah, that's right, where there is. There's a point where you can go down, uh, there's a top path, a middle path, and a bottom path. And if you do this, you have to go in one, then the other, then the other. And if you don't do it the right way, then you repeat. Right. And you can actually run through it quite a few times before you realize that that's what you're doing. Uh, and, and like, there's, you know, little balls of fire flinging around and potaboos or whatever they're called, the mm -hmm. little things of fire. And there's the, the, the Lost Woods in, mm. in Zelda. And I, is that, is that a, a repetitive trap or is that a, a set of screens that look identical and you feel, and it feels like that? Oh, that is a repetitive trap. Okay. You can go forever to the okay, left, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure. That's, that's what I remembered as being true. Oh, the original Final Fantasy also has one. On your way to fight uh, Tiamat uh, in the, the air hmm. castle. It's, it's, it's a castle. It's in yeah. the air. Right, there's, you know, four elements. One of them has to be air. <laughs> right, that's true. And so there, there's a section there where you have to know the path, I think. I, I think it's actually relatively simple um, in order to do it. And part of me just knows what I'm doing when I get there. Right, yeah, you have, you have finger memory and then who knows. Right, so I'd, that's a game I've played entirely too many times. I realize when I'm playing it now, I'm actually not even having any, having any fun. It's just like, right. what I'm enjoying is the nostalgia and more than anything else. And so it doesn't really matter if any individual activity is fun. I'm like, oh, fighting imps. Right. Oh, yes. oh giants. Yeah. This right. is and it's funny because in a certain regard, almost nothing about that game has ever been fun. Um, <laughs> but it was an incredible game and I loved mm -hmm. it and it changed like the way that RPGs were made and it changed the way I thought about video games and it felt amazing. But mm -hmm. but in fact, it really did consist of walking back and forth and getting into fights and then pressing A a lot so that I had enough gold to buy a lot of potions. Yeah, so that you could then go and <laughs> do that again, only you didn't walk back and forth, you just walked forth. Right, yeah, I don't know. Like, why, why that's fun is, a, is certainly its own big interesting question. Auto maps are, are this funny thing because 
because mapping is boring, maybe, or it's fun, maybe, according to who you are. The thing that, like, I like auto maps. I, I like there mm. being a drawing of where I have gone. What I don't like is automatic labeling of features. Oh, I see. And very, very few games have a, a system, that have auto maps, have a system where you get to make marks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's like, just really too bad. Because... Uh, among other things, it means that things that are features have to be really obvious or they're mm -hmm. programmed. They're like the very specific things. Right, but that can be a good aspect anyway. Like that article that I read that I'm pretty sure you've sent to me about how you would want to, if you're, you're going to have a thing you want somebody to remember, like a branching path mm -hmm. or a... You know, there's a crumbling wall and you don't have a bomb yet, but then you're about to go get the bomb. You put a giant statue of somebody right. holding an orb on fire yeah. right next to that crumbling wall. And then they're like, oh, that crumbling wall next to the giant statue. And like that's sort of built into the design of these... Uh, Metroidvania games. And, that, and that's true. So there's a game that I really love. It, we didn't mention it in the video game canon, and mm -hmm. I think this is, you know, a crime because I think it is actually, among other things, extremely historically important and, like, you know, underrepresented. And it's Ultima Underworld. Okay. It was sort of part of the Ultima series, which is a, you know, early top-down computer RPG. Uh, um, that involved letters moving around, right? I don't think... It, no, none of the Ultimas ever involved letters. None of the Ultimas... Oh, okay. There was some early primitive graphics, but, but it all, you know, pixels. Uh, all colored right. pixels. So, like, Rogue used... Which I don't think we also mentioned that either in the canon. But yeah, no, that man. <laughs> or or um, NetHack. Right, or which is the, the, yeah, the descendant of Rogue. Right. Um, you know, Rogue used letters where you it was top-down, and it was basically character-sized places that you could move around. Right. My understanding was that the Ultimas were like that, whether they were letters or some other... Yeah, they, I mean, they were tiles. You know, it was a world of tiles, and you moved one tile at a time, and relatively no animation, you know, like, mm. uh, it had, like, tactical battles where you move from square to square, and and I, I didn't play most of them, so I'm not going to say too much more. I am fairly certain I have played none of them. Well, I played Ultima 7 a lot, and it had my favorite bug in any video game, but I'm not going to talk about it now, but I'm going to talk about it later. Hmm, I'm going to write down <laughs> Ultima 7 bug, and I'm also going to write down favorite bugs. Oh, that's a great one. Which um, is an excellent thing to do a whole episode on. Yeah. But but Ultimate Underworld was sort of part of this series, but I have no idea anything about the history of like how it happened, but it was this new studio, Looking Glass Entertainment, and they got the ultimate license to make this first-person sim, immersive sim, where you wandered around in this dungeon and you could pick anything up and you had to get food and you had to eat food and it was a first person thing. Um, it was a, actually predates Wolfenstein and has extremely better tech. Um, it's funny how many people add food but not water to their... Yeah, I don't think there was water. I, I don't <laughs> like, remember there being water. Because like, uh, like in a, a playthrough of any game that lasts like 10 or 12 hours, you could not eat for that long. Right, like, but you're going to get thirsty. Yeah. And, and like, thirsty to the point of lying down. Maybe you're just drinking enough healing and mana potions that it's fine <laughs> in this game. <laughs> All right. I, there was also alcohol, so. Um, oh, okay. 
which would I think would like increase your strength and reduce your dexterity or something. I think would okay. like mess up your vision in some way. <laughs> that, um, I played a game once where it uh, rotated the arrow keys on your keyboard oh, by ninety degrees. That's a great mechanic. I love any any implementation of changing the keys. Yeah, um, and this was a, a mud, and, and it wasn't the arrow keys. It was north, south, east, west. Right, and somebody organized a. Um, a drunk race where you would have to sit there and get drunk and then try to get to somewhere else in the map. No, that's and, really great. And that's even harder because it's like North N, S, E, and W are not particularly near each other. Right. The S and the E are kind of, but they're not yeah, yeah. spatially oriented on the keyboard. Right. And that is, that is how you had to get around. And man, did I lose that race. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Anyway, that's a great mechanic. So um, Ultima Seven. So uh, not Ultima Seven, which oh. Ultima Seven has my favorite bug. But we're talking about Ultima Underworld, and Ultima Underworld has an auto map, but it only shows the geographic spatial stuff. It contains no labels. Okay. And it's a PC game, so it gives you a quill pen, and you can click uh, on the map and you can write anything you want uh, at any location. You're just free to add text to your map, however you want to add text. And it's an early experiment in like you know, environmental storytelling and having, you know, there's this phrase, the immersive sim. And I think it was like literally invented by this team. I could be wrong, but it's easy to talk about Deus Ex. And um, yeah. I heard about it from the Mark Brown video. Um, Aha. <laughs> I'm not the only one who talks about YouTube videos. Um, there was something early on in like the idea of first person games. There was this promise that like, it's like you're really there, man. Um, <laughs> and you know, over time, we have realized that it's just like a different perspective on a video game, and it's not obviously any more or less like you're really there than playing a 2D platformer. Right. Um, but it's different. Yeah, but the immersive sim, uh, the whole notion is that you can have many more choices for how you go about solving any given task. Right, and, and that there are all of these kinds of objects, and in some ideal world, you would be able to interact with them in all of the ways that you might hope and expect. And so, I don't think anyone would, like, obviously call, like, Dwarf Fortress or NetHack an immersive sim, <laughs> but in fact, right. they embody this promise probably more than, hmm. more than any other game. Well, I mean... So I don't really like roguelikes. I find them frustrating and annoying. And one thing I really like about games is building things. You're like developing something or building something. And the fact that if you fail, you go down to ground zero is, I mean, even if that's just like how far to the right you've gone, then I just hate starting over. And I don't think that I learn enough in real life to make up for the fact that like, oh, I drank the yellow potion and this time it killed me. Because, like, maybe I have... Somehow in this game I haven't discovered which one's the healing potion, so I pick one of my unknown potions in right, my inventory. Because you're about to die and it's the best choice you have. Right, the best choice oh. I have is to drink a random potion and you're like, oh, it lit me on fire. What a good idea. Guess I'm going back. Even though, like, it's usually pretty rare that you make it that far into a game without knowing what the healing potions are, but... Yeah, but although right, I mean the promise, the the thing that's wonderful about that hack is the storytelling potential there. It's mm. it's it's a narrative you craft for yourself, and you're like, and I didn't know what to do, and so I just drank a random potion, and <laughs> it made me giant. <laughs> right. Um, so, but like that, that's the positive outcome. Right. No, no one is like, and it lit me on fire, and the game ended. <laughs> no one tells that right. story extremely excitedly. <laughs> no. Well, maybe I did, but uh, <laughs> mostly because I get excited about how much I hate this kind of game. But having said that, I played uh, Pixel Dungeon on my phone for like 
entirely longer than I would like to have. Just because I was... It was the thing that was on my phone for a while. It's a roguelike. You can be a warrior or a wizard or a something else, and some of them are easier or harder than others. It turns out warriors are easy because they know what some kind of potion is already. I don't Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's mechanics and they yeah. affect things. Right. Um, there's a, a, a roguelike which I, I love, um, mm-hmm. which is called Desktop Dungeons, but it's not really a roguelike. It has almost all of the mechanics of roguelikes, which is you have a character class and you play a thing and you go and you kill monsters and you move around on a very simple screen and you gain experience and if you die, it's over. But the entire dungeon is one screen mm. and the dungeon is extremely difficult. Mm. And so the whole gameplay is not about progression, it's about puzzle solving. Um, Because essentially what you must do is look at the available resources you have Mm -hmm. and use them correctly. And the monsters you can kill to get experience are one of the main resources. And, Mm. And in this game, you get bonus experience for killing monsters a higher level than you. Okay. And so you craft these incredibly elaborate strategies to be able to kill monsters that are higher level than you to get the bonus exp because there is a limited amount of exp on Mm. the board and you're gonna need to be a certain level to beat the boss i Um, see i see but it's it's a resource management puzzle Hmm. as a roguelike Um, okay and 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 i think it's really fun and they're about 20 minute playthroughs so that's the other thing you lose in whatever right yeah 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 that's that's good. Yeah, I definitely because it was on my phone, and it, then I would go like multiple play sessions in the same game. But I was only playing for like five minutes at a time, you know, because it's a phone. It's like you're waiting for the subway or right. you know whatever is happening. It was kind of you know frustrating. And sometimes you'd be like, I'm starting up. You're like, Oh right, I played this for a while a while ago. And I don't really care that much about how I do this right. time around. It was very confusing. Many games have this property of like being sort of fun. Um, yeah. And, and what does it mean to be sort of fun? And mm-hmm. like, why do we keep playing them? And who knows? I mean, I, I played it for long enough that I looked up on the internet how to play it better. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the things that I, I, me- I mentioned these Flash games earlier, and I was playing these mining games, and I played this, this mining game for hours. Mm. And it was not very good. And it was not very fun. It wasn't Motherload, was it? No. It was called... I don't even remember, actually. I don't remember what it was called. And, you know, someone might be listening. They might, they might be their game. I don't want to tell them that their game wasn't very good and wasn't very fun. So, um, Just don't say it. <laughs> I don't remember what it was called, but you, there's a whole bunch of games that are of this, of this genre. To, to point out, Motherload is quite good. I very much enjoy it. It involves drilling through the ground and getting resources that fill your thing and then having to fly to the surface to sell it. And haven't if you run out of gas, you explode for some reason. Oh, so this game was almost exactly like that. Oh, okay. Um, and it was really fun for a little while, hmm. and then I was just like, "Oh my god, I need to get sixty thousand dollars in order to buy the upgraded cargo hold." And once uh, I buy the upgraded cargo hold, I will be have twice as much space, so I will be able to, you know, get. $12,000 in each trip underground instead of $6,000, um, and that will be great. But it was just like this progression machine, and, and like I fully understood the game very, very quickly uh-huh. and felt mysteriously compelled to play through, and I was like, no, I'm going to get all of the gems. <laughs> like there was a quest that was like to get all four gems, and I was like, oh, I'm definitely I solving all the quests. M- Motherload is like that. 
only I think it does a pretty good job of keeping you able to go down. Also, you can drill straight down. Mm. And so uh, basically the best thing to do is to just fall down a hole and then know how far you got the last time and try to not hit the bottom. Um, And then eventually there's rocks and you need dynamite to... This had this had temperature, so you had to get yeah. things. There was it was all it was actually all like extremely mm. competently executed. It was actually quite engrossing, right? I played it for for a while, and mm-hmm. and so mo- when I say like it wasn't fun, it wasn't good. Like mostly, I'm like, why did I play it for so long? I'm like pissed off at you guys for making me play this game, but yeah. you never made me play. <laughs> I chose to. I admit it. That's true. In Motherload, there's like this fun story about there's another miner down there, and then you find out that they are, I don't know, there's there's like some monster down there, and they're not really sure what it is, and, and like you get these little like transmissions all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, mini clip. It uh, looks like this. Yeah, that looks a lot like the game I was playing, but, you it's know, different. A different. Uh, the game I was playing, you didn't fly. Oh, yeah, you have like oh. a little uh, propellers yeah. on top. Yeah, I think I did play Motherworld as well. But so Ultimate Underworld, there's a thing I want to say about Ultimate Underworld. We're almost out of time, I think. And yeah, we should we should finish talking about Ultima Underworld and then stop. Yeah, right. So the thing I want to say is there's this game and it's a immersive sim, and the reason that's important is because the world is filled with objects. Hmm. Um and some of the objects are useful for random things, like I don't, I don't I don't fully remember. You collect moss for some reason or like there's bones. Maybe you can throw a bone and a dog chases it. You know, I I don't think that's true, but it's like that kind of thing. There's like lots of objects in the game. Mm-hmm. Um and some of them are useful for random stuff. They just have their like normal everyday gameplay thing and some of them are just extremely plot important. And there aren't necessarily obvious clues about this. And so the game one of the major parts of the game is paying attention to the environment. Because there's also, there's an extremely complex plot which is told through incidental conversation and, like, random shit you find. So, like, you'll, like, talk to someone and they'll be like, oh, we sent so-and-so down to the dungeon and they never came back. Then, you know, you'll go down to the dungeon and you'll, like, see a skeleton. And then you'll like see a suit of armor and pick it up. You know, you'll you'll recognize these set of things, and it will never tell you that this was this person. Mm. But through all of these like uh, um, environmental cues, you will realize this, and that's like a really powerful thing, right? Like anytime the player can realize something instead of being told it, it's like a thousand times more fun. Right. It's like in Portal when you find that gap behind the wall that oh, yeah. it, you know there's like a one of the many panels that slides out, and it clearly is trying to slide back but there's a block in the way or something like that and you go back there and you find the graffiti all over the wall the cake is a lie the cake right. is a lie because even already at that point you're realizing that GLaDOS is up to no good right um, and you're like you are a little bit too awkward and sometimes accidentally bloodthirsty sounding at this point and and like I don't really trust you but I literally can do nothing but what right, you're asking, asking of yeah. me and so you find that little bit and it's just so pleasing and appealing to like see these things written on the wall and it's really nice. I, I really like environmental storytelling. I do find it like slightly disappointing when somebody points it out. Right, yeah. There's this, there's this period of time in PC gaming and I think probably all gaming where like no one knew what they were doing so people were just extremely experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there's a period of time 
where people were extremely conservative, and I think we're in a pretty experimental phase again. But but that's that's a very yeah. But we're coming out of an extremely conservative. Yeah, phase. yeah, no, absolutely, and that's a this is a very large conversation um, that I'm going to ignore. <laughs> so because what was really cool about this game, the combination of these things, the the auto map, but the lack of labeling, the environmental storytelling, the way in which all objects could be interacted with. Um, and so no object had any greater prominence than another, but characters would just like kind of tell you stuff um, mm -hmm. and you would be expected to pay attention and notice. And so you might find this skeleton and a sword next to it and it would just be a sword, but then it would be the sword that you needed to give to this person because it was this, you know, their friend's sword or, or mm -hmm. whatever, right? And, and there was nothing about, you when you picked up that sword, it didn't say like, you got the whatever sword. Right. Um, it was just like went to your inventory as a random ass sword. Right. Um, like Fallout has, uh, you know, you have to go find people's stuff right. all the time. And it usually tells you, or you can't remove it from your inventory. Right. Which, you know, is a little bit nice because it means that you don't find yourself completely unable to find it. Oh, I sold that sword to right, a merchant. Exactly. One of the reasons that people don't do these things is because there are real problems mm -hmm. with this mode of game design. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to remember the end of this game, and I, I don't fully remember it, so I'm likely to inaccurately report something about, about how this game works because it was a long time ago. But if I recall correctly, what you had to do was defeat some kind of demon wizard Oh, um, crazy. I'm so surprised. <laughs> um, but it, it was like an undead manifestation of some uh, power-hungry wizard who had gone into the depths of whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, I'm not claiming that it was like the most unique story ever. And, and what you had to do, you had to do something with this wizard's remains. Oh. But this wizard's remains were just a random skeleton somewhere oh. in the dungeon. Oh. Um. But you learned a lot about this guy, and uh. you learned a lot about what had happened, and eventually you realized that this was the thing, and mm -hmm. and so you had to, you maybe had to like bury the, I can't remember, but you had to, you had to do something with this random skeleton, which was in no way specifically labeled. Okay. And then once you did this, the boss became like vulnerable instead of invulnerable. Um, I and, see. And you could beat him, but that. The amount of attention you had to pay to like the story of the game, the plot, every random thing everyone said, every like the location of where you picked everything up to answer this question mm -hmm. and and beat it was like extraordinary. But it worked. Like I I remember doing it. Okay. And that's what is lost in like explanation of features. Waypoints. Right. It's the the way in which anything could be a feature, and so you have to pay attention to everything. Right. Or at least enough. Yeah, you know, you know, it definitely connects the different aspects of the game. Talking to people in towns where they tell you about the wizard who had the thing that defeated the lord whatever. And right. So if you paid attention, often they're so very separate. You're like, oh, the towns are where people talk about the town. Right. Or they talk about where to find the quest right. that and you need to get yeah. there. In many, in many games, it's where they add like an exclamation point to your mark, to your map. Um. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Here, go over there and do that thing. I like exploration. I also am willing to admit that I just don't 
quite have the time for explanation exploration these days. Right. No, that's and that's also true. And and a lot of these a lot of these like memories of, of games being extremely wonderful and extremely engrossing, you know, are tinged with like childhood um, and <laughs> right. and what childhood feels like, mm-hmm. um, which is um, spoiler alert for anyone young, different from what adulthood feels like. <laughs> huh. I feel like kids get told that, but I don't know if they get told exactly how. Or like, I don't know, yeah, I felt like... Okay. I don't think they'd believe it anyway. Yeah, that's true. Or they wouldn't believe that it would happen to them. Right. I definitely didn't believe it would ever happen to me. So, the thing about automaps and the thing about environmental storytelling, and, and the way in which not knowing what it is that you specifically have to pay attention to, causes you to pay attention to everything. Mm-hmm. And if a game can do that and make it feel natural and fun instead of making it feel like, oh my god, I have to check every square now, which is a very easy pitfall. Um, right. It's like... Like how I burned every bush in <laughs> right. Zelda. Yeah. If you can avoid that feeling and somehow just get the feeling of like, oh my god, there's this rich world and I have to pay attention to everything and I'm, and I'm happy to do so. Right. It's very easy to like not pay attention to stuff. And so if there's stuff to pay attention to, mechanics that draw your attention to it, and force you to do so are really wonderful because then then you're like getting engrossed in this thing and you are being caused to have to enjoy things that you might otherwise mm-hmm. elide over or forget to enjoy. Like, like when I read comic books and I skip all the illustrations because I like words. I read something about a comic book artist who was just was like, it's so annoying. I put so much work into every one of those drawings and people just flip through really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> There's there's one thing that's interesting that some modern, more cinematic video games do in controlling your attention that feels a lot better than when somebody just, like, puts a waypoint. And Uncharted does this quite often, which is they have a button. It tells you, like, hey, you have to check something out. You press, like, up on the D-pad, which you don't use to get around. It's like, oh, I forgot. Mm. There's, that's right, there's a D-pad. And you press up on it, and, you know, your character looks at something and the camera pans while you're holding the button up at like a mountain or like oh that's the mountain that we're trying to get to blah 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 it points your character at it so you know that's the way you have to go so like that's where you're trying to find and it doesn't say like go through that doorway over there but it does point you say hey the mountain or like the castle that you're trying to get to or whatever it is 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 that way go do it and it feels a little bit better because there's some scene, you're there with a couple NPCs and you chat for a minute while you're looking at whatever thing you're supposed to go see. And and it's it's nice. It's it's a nice way to do it. I mean, it is a really expensive way to do it because right. it involves a lot of like, let's now get our voice actors to have this right. little chat yeah. all the time to always be able to remind you what you're supposed to be doing. So it's not, strictly speaking, always an option for every video game. But there are, like, other ways of handling it slightly more gracefully than putting a dot on the screen and say, that way, go over there. Right. Yeah, and I like that. I like the, like, subtle reminders of things, like, of where you're supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, agency is is one of the big questions, and, and that's the thing that I expect we will we'll continue to, to refer back to, what agency feels like. Um, that's true. I think and we... maybe that'll be next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think we're we're probably we're probably about done. I think we talked for like longer than we were planning on, which yeah. is probably fine. But uh, I think that'll be it. How do we sign out? I don't know. Uh, I'm Will. <laughs> I'm Bryce. <laughs> and this was side quests. Yep. See you next time.